Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. When John Lennon arrived in Abbey Road in July 1969 with a brand new song for the Beatles, he might not have thought that he was uh, not only delivering their next single, but commencing on an odd series of events that would lead to a solo rock and roll album in the mid-70s and ending in the US courts in 1977. Um, because Come Together has a very kind of odd afterlife, doesn't it, Stephen? It does. Uh, which It leads into litigation, which is always a good thing. We like litigation. Always. So, yeah, so what begins as a kind of, you know, just another day at the studio where John rocks in and uh, as we'll see, a song that gets put down quite quickly without any particular drama um, does end up spinning into Lennon having obligations to shady characters and all the rest. And in some ways, you know, if anybody uh, remembers our episodes from... Um, uh, last year about My Sweet Lord and how My Sweet Lord turned into an entire cottage industry that put many um, legal families through school. Uh, this episode will deliver more of the same, but it, it starts with good intentions because, you know, if we go back to 1969, uh, you know, the end of May, John and Yoko are doing their second bed in and they meet Timothy Leary. And that's, you know, the the seed, isn't it, where Come Together comes from? That's really the that's really the start of this song. So um, it, originally, the song was composed for Timothy Leary's campaign as governor of California. He was standing against uh, Ronald Reagan at that time, and he his slogan was "Come together, join the party." And he asked uh, John, "Would he write a campaign song or come up with a jingle or something?" Um, Leary and his wife Rosemary were in Montreal specifically for the bed in. Uh, which was on June the 1st, 1969. And they're both there singing in the background chorus and they're actually mentioned in the lyrics. So it, everybody's talking about John and Yoko, Timmy Leary, Rosemary, Tommy Smothers, Bobby Dylan. So they're, they're you know, they're they're next to John and Yoko in the, uh, in the lyric. Yeah. And so Leary is running this campaign, um, you know, where his slogan is come together, join the party. And what we'll kind of see as a re- recurring pattern is people getting next to John Lennon, bending his ear and John Lennon going, yeah, great, whatever, um, which is sometimes for his detriment. Uh, but Leary, you know, thought John was, you know, going to write this song and deliver and be great. There seems to be a bit of a miscommunication, so we say, between Leary and um, John Lennon. Uh, Lennon sent Leary a demo tape of song ideas. I've never heard that tape. Oh. Um, I don't know whether that tape is out there or circulating, but... Um, 
Lenin said, you know, they were really two different things that he had this snippet come together, join the party, and then he, he subsequently turned it into a, a, a song. Um, in When he was talking to David Sheff in 1980, he said it was created in the studio. It's gobbledygook. It was an expression that Leary had come up with. Um, for his attempt to be president or whoever he wanted to be. He asked me to write a campaign song. I tried and tried, but I couldn't come up with one. I came up with Come Together, which would have been no good to him. You couldn't have a campaign song like that, right? Um, Leary took a different view. Mm. He said, I was a bit miffed that Lennon passed me over. I sent a mild protest to John. He replied with typical Lennon charm and wit that he was a tailor and I was a customer who had ordered a suit and never returned. So he sold it to someone else. Yeah, and Lennon, you know, I think that's totally reasonable. I mean, Lennon, you know, he could blow hot and cold and, you know, he would basically be a man who would follow his own ideas. So I don't know if Leary thought that Lennon was going to drop everything and just follow him and be his, you know, campaign entertainer or be his campaign guide. I I don't know. Um, But it does give us the phrase, Lennon, out of all of this, takes the phrase come together away from this interaction with uh, Timothy Leary, and it eventually evolves into this song. Curiously, you know, Leary's campaign uh, against uh, Ronald Reagan ended um, by a conviction for uh, cannabis possession. But, uh, you know, considering how these laws have changed over over intervening years, you know, I think if, if, if you didn't own cannabis, you mightn't be able to get elected. That's what it seems like these days. I don't know. Kids. Kids, eh? Uh, the 1st of June is when, you know, John and Yoko are finishing their second Montreal bed and they record Give Peace a Chance, um, you know, mentions Timmy Leary. That comes out in July 1969 and, and heads up the charts. And what's burbling along in the background is the, the Beatles have been working on Abbey Road. They are, there are huge chunks of Abbey Road that are being done without John because at the start of July, John is involved in a car accident in Scotland um, with Yoko and Kyoko, uh, Yoko's daughter, uh, and they're knocked out of action. But once we get into the third weekend in July 1969, John reappears on the scene and he's got this new song, Come Together, Ready to Go. But uh, what I've always found interesting is that before they go into the studio to record it on the 21st of July 1969, the Beatles have a meetup at the, the weekend beforehand. They actually see a rough cut of Let It Be, or as it's still called at the time, Get Back, which is fun because that's something that the Beatles are still doing to this day is looking at rough cuts of Get Back. And um, they they go out for dinner. There's some very amusing pictures of a pregnant Linda McCartney hanging out with Yoko Ono, I don't know, discussing, I don't know what to, what to have for dessert. Um, but they're very kind of casual Polaroid photos of the Beatles out for dinner after a screening of Let It Be. And we kind of, as far as we know, before they hit the studio on Monday, the 21st of July, uh, 1969, the previous evening man has walked on the moon, but there's been some kind of meeting where Paul and John have knocked the song into shape because Paul talks about this in many years from now, doesn't he? Well, he talks about him coming around uh, with um, the basic, what he calls a very perky little song. And uh, Paul will say that he recognised the uh, link to Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me at that stage. Um, And he's saying, you know, let's try something different. Let's try swampy. And this is a word that keeps cropping up. Uh, You know, the swampy sound, the, the kind of Dr. John uh, kind of thing. So, so yes, Paul seems to have had some input in knocking the song together. I actually found an interview in, from December 1987 with George, mm. 
And he says he wrote two lines of the song. Now, whether he's being specific or not, but this is he's being interviewed by Selena Scott. And um, she asks him about uh, John's reaction to I, Me, Mine. Say, this is in 1987. He said, John was annoyed because I didn't say that he'd written one line of Taxman. But I also didn't say how I wrote two lines of Come Together or three lines of Eleanor Rigby. You know, I wasn't getting into any of that. I think in the balance, I would have had more things to be niggled with him about than he would have had with me. So I think I wonder what two lines... Uh, that George came up with. Was he was he kind of speaking in generalities? That's what George I wonder. Was... I, that's what I wonder. But he is he just saying I did a bit of this, I did a bit of that, you know? But but we do. He says two lines have come together, three lines of Eleanor Rigby. We know he did write three lines of Eleanor Rigby. He we, he came up with that whole refrain that uh, look at all the lonely people. That's his line and his. Ah. So so he does have. There is precedent here. There is precedent. So he may maybe mm. maybe. Um, but yeah. So Paul. Uh, as you say, in many years from now, he, he he says he's the first person to say, oh, this sounds a bit like Chuck Berry's uh, You Can't Catch Me. And it kind of hinges around, you know, it, this phrase here, here come old flat top, which is the, the, the bit that kind of might have immediately hooked people back into this uh, old Chuck Berry song. So the notion that Paul is trying to bring is that, well, let's try and change the vibe of the song. And you know the the you know I'm sure everybody listening here today has heard the song come together, uh, and that it has that very distinctive Paul bass line, which is what he's trying to use to get this kind of swampy attitude going. And um, yeah, it's interesting that what he actually says is, "I laid that bass line down," which very much makes the mood. <laughs> yeah, it's well, actually <laughs> it's actually a bass line that people now use very often in rap records. If it's not a sample, they use that riff. But that was my contribution to that. And I'm not entirely sure if he's saying that was my contribution to rap music or that was his contribution <laughs> to, to come together. together. But but it's his baseline, which, quote, very much makes the mood. It, well, he, he might. I mean, it's his. Yeah, it's the it's, it's a song where the rhythm section do do an extraordinary job. It has to be said. They do do. Um, they do do. I can't think of any rap song that has the come together baseline in it for a number of reasons because the Beatles are the most litigious group yes. uh, on, on, on the face of the earth. But uh, it certainly is a vibe. And the recording of the song is really uneventful. You know, there's not a whole lot we can, we can say about it. John has been away. He comes back into the studio on Monday, the 21st of July. Um, Neil Armstrong is on the moon, as I've already said, because I find that I find something very um, inspiring or curious about the link that uh, Man is on the Moon will come together is being recorded. Um, and they do about seven takes. Three of them are incomplete and take six is the basis of the album version uh, on Monday, the 21st of July, 69. And the, uh, you know, we've heard certain alternate versions. Take one um, has been on uh, Anthology 3. Uh, take five is on the expanded 50th anniversary reissue of, of Abbey Road. And, you know, the song is... Actually, if you listen to that take one um, from Anthology Three, it's 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 very much in its own form from the the very start of the uh, from the very start of the recording, and you know there's a little bit of tweaking of lyrics. So I've I've written a, a, there's one version of lyrics where he says got to get injections because he's so hard to see, but once they've laid it down and they have that take six, you know there's a bit of vocal overdubs for the next two days, and you know it's it's not a very dramatic session. Is no, it? John has appeared. They've gotten a great John song down. They must have been delighted with themselves. They, you know, this thing that Paul always, you know, 
lasers in on, on a good track and knows what's going on. And the four of them all, all lay it down. So Paul's on bass, George's on lead guitar, Ringo obviously on drums, George Martin's in the studio. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing really to add except John says, shoot me for some reason. Yes, that, that seems odd. <laughs> it is I odd. Never, I never heard that before the uh, uh, remasters came out. I don't think I ever noticed did that. you not? No. I, I remember because, as I've said before in this, I, I kind of, um, there were certain uh, Beatle records that I didn't hear until after I had read Lewison's uh, uh, recording sessions book. So I remember reading in Lewison's recording sessions book about this kind of shoot me thing. So when I got Happy Road and I went to listen to it, I was like, oh, that's that's kind of Yeah, no, I, always just, I just heard, always heard it as a kind of shoop. You know, I didn't, I didn't. Oh, right. The me is kind of cut off. So, but, um, I can, uh, yes, it's like when uh, listen to what the man said, where that kiss appears in the remasters. Yes, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that for years. <laughs> I, I, I think, I think, I think it's a medical condition. Anyway, and uh, the backing vocal mystery. Now, I have to admit, in preparation for this, um, but I sort of had a crisis of confidence because I have always assumed that the backing vocals in Come Together are Paul, but they're not. Are they not? Or are they? Well, what, what is the backing vocal mystery? Well, Jeff Emmerich, pause. Oh, okay. Pause um, for <laughs> yeah. an unreliable witness. An unreliable witness. Jeff Emmerich said that uh, Lennon did all the backing vocals by himself. And that when McCartney sort of frustrated at this, said, you know, what do you want me to do? And he went, Lennon said, don't worry, I'll do, I'll do the overdubs on this. Um, and certainly there was an interview that McCartney gave to Ray Connolly in 1970, expressing his disappointment about not saying with Lennon and he said even on Abbey Road we don't do harmonies like we used to I think it's sad on Come Together I would have liked to sing harmony with John and I think he would have liked me too but I was too embarrassed to ask him and I don't work to the best of my abilities in that situation and this is kind of taken as a very good example of the breakdown in the relationship they have at this minute uh, at, uh, at that time but Ian McDonald then in his book says no no Paul uh, Paul uh, does sing the backing vocal. Mm. So I think they're both right and they're both wrong. I think what must <laughs> have happened is that Paul overdubbed the backing mm-hmm. vocals so that he's not, when he's, in, he's saying, I would have liked to sing harmony with John, he's really referring back to whether standing around a microphone or they're working something out. And I, I think it's Paul is singing uh, there. Um, yeah. So I, I think that must have been we did it separately. We didn't do it together. And that's really what he's complaining about. I mean, that 1970 interview with McCartney, it's an odd thing for him to say, because putting Come Together for one side, Abbey Road is the album with uh, Because, which has got, you know, three sets of three-part harmonies on it yeah. and is uh, very much uh, an old school callback to the three of them all around one mic getting it down. So I'm not really sure what he's irked about. I, th- I think it must be because... Come Together is a song that, as you say, John brings to him. There's clearly a little bit of them knocking it around, coming up with something, working on it like the old days, but they just weren't quite like the old days because they were working separately. You were going in, recording one part, then recording another part, and they didn't get to kind of stand around a mic. And he's focusing in on that one song, and I think the interview is in the context of his relationship with John rather than... Mm-hmm. A kind of critique of the whole album and the, the 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 manner in which it was recorded. 
So, so when I think of Abby, when I think, sorry, of come together, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm backing vocals. I'm thinking of, let's say that line one and one and one is three, you yeah. know, where so there's a second voice coming in there. And I, I assume that's Paul. Isn't that Paul? Or is that John closely mimicking Paul? I thought that was John. I actually thought that point was John. I always thought that was Paul. Though those kind of little single intonations was Paul. Maybe it's the guy who does the as on a day in the life. Maybe it's that guy. Maybe it's that guy. Could be. Well, I suppose it's 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 well, it's maybe similar to the you know those little kind of vocal inflections on Ballad, Ballad of John, John and Yoko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a bit of a callback, and I thought, well, that's yeah. just Paul's contribution. But uh, um, what do you think, folks? Who's doing those backing vocals? Um, so they get the song, as I said, most of the work is done on Monday. There's some vocal overdubs on Tuesday and Wednesday, the 22nd and 23rd of uh, July 69. And it's a, you know, what they kind of realise pretty quickly is that, you know, it's a great song. It ends up opening the album and it ends up becoming a single, which reaches uh, number one in America and number four in the UK. But is it, you know, it comes back to this notion of what's the song about, you know? So John says it's, it's gobbledygook. Yeah. Um, should we, you know, fire up the slide projector and put up some other theories? John has kind of said at one point, you, you know, the, the flat top, uh, and he said, the reference that he said, you know, he was writing about somebody that was kind of you know, very, very cool in the, in the 50s, said when they were teenagers, a flat top was like the coolest haircut to have. Although I have to say, if he's saying that he never had a flat top. No. You know, um, I don't remember any of them having that kind of haircut. <laughs> and he said, uh, but now that person who was very cool in the 50s, well, you know, he's got hair down to his knees and he's a hippie. And he was just kind of writing something very general. Um, yeah. But I did come across uh, a, a theory and uh, at the risk of sounding like absolutely the worst Beatles podcast in the world. Yes. <laughs> he, John is John is writing about the other Beatles. He's writing about himself. He's writing about Paul. He's writing about George. He's writing about Ringo. And you can break the verses down. Uh, so that must be true if you read the lyrics. Well, I, I think you're talking about uh, intentional fallacy, aren't you? That there's more poetry in a poem than the poet realizes. Is exactly. that what all this comes that's down exactly, to? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, you know, this a, is essence of "Hey Jude" is actually about John and Yoko. This is this, yes. is, this is we're going into that territory here, and, and not so, about a man with a parrot on his shoulder. <laughs> um, so, what is how does how does this apply to um, to come together? Well, the first. Uh, verse, here come old flat top, he come grooving up slowly. Then it goes, he won holy roller, he got hair down to his knee. Well, that's obviously about George. Okay. He's the holy roller and he's got the long hair, longest hair at that point. Uh, and also that line, he got to be a joker, he just do what he please because George has walked out of the Let It Be sessions. He's saying, well, you know, I, I play what you want me to play or I won't play at all. He's just doing okay. what he pleases. All right. Um, go on then. So that, that's the George verse, is it? That's the George verse. Um, then we go on to, we'll, we'll skip a verse and um, bag production, walrus gumboot, gumboot Ono sideboard. Uh, clearly, that's just all about John and Yoko. That's okay. Pretty, that's pretty obvious, you think? Yeah. Hold you in his armchair, you can feel his disease. Could that be a heroin reference? I don't that, know. Uh, yeah. Quite possibly. Jeez, I'm, I'm getting into this. You're getting into this. So this is yeah. uh, this is this is this is what we have to. Uh, and uh, then the final verse is all about uh, Paul. Um, okay. He say one and one and one is three. 
so that's the uh, three against one, Klein and uh, mm. uh, you see, you see. And then the, uh, the the little kind of dig at the end got to be good looking because he's so hard to see. Well, Paul was the good looking cute one. He's the cute beetle. All right. He's the cute beetle. So I think we just leave it there. I think that's obviously. So how do we get a Ringo verse? The verse you've left out is he wear no shoe shine. He got toe jump football. He got monkey finger. That, that you know, if you. <laughs> if Poor you're, Ringo. If you're, Poor Ringo's got monkey finger. He shoot Coca Cola. Well, you know, it's Scotch and Coke. Scotch and Coke. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, one thing I can tell you is you got to be free. Well, I don't know. It's certainly with all these descriptions. I, you know, I'd hate to be somebody kind of in an identity parade where John is trying to describe what's going on. But uh, the, but, of, but of course, this is I'm I'm, I'm going to give you uh, uh, your cue uh, here. Uh, the verse oh. about the verse about Paul. It says he won Mojo filter. Well, he does turn into one of the Mojo filters you later see? on, which in, in 1995, we might come on to that later on. But yeah, that's it's foreshadowing. It's you know? undeniable, I think. Uh, Unless it's a verse about Paul Weller. Who knows? We just it don't could know. be. Um, so that's the, the story of Come Together. But the story of Come Together actually goes back to May 1955. It does. Because that's where this whole mess, you know, rewinds to. So in May 1955, Chuck Berry records a song called You Can't Catch Me uh, at his first session for Chess Records in Chicago. And it's one of those sessions that turns out a lot of hits. He also records Maybelline. Isn't that right? In that session? That's true. Um, I, I, I've been in those studios. I've stood on that. Spot. Have you? Yes, I've been in, in chess studios. And uh, the uh, the guide said, this is the very spot where uh, Chuck Berry stood to record uh, Maybelline and You Can't Catch Me in May 1955. And we all got to stand on the spot. How big or how unassuming tiny. is chess it's, studios? It's tiny. It's a tiny, yeah. tiny building. And um, they're clearly in... I was there two years ago and... Uh, they're clearly working on turning it into a completely sterile tourist attraction. Um, but um, yeah, you kind of went upstairs and the studio was on the first floor and uh, it was absolutely, you know, there were maybe 25, 30 people and it, the room was full. Um, very, very strange to think that all those people kind of stood on that spot, you know, and uh, the Stones were in town that, that, that weekend. And I was, you know, thinking, well, you know, Mick and Keith probably be on the tour looking at chess. Videos, but, uh, <laughs> I'm sure they've, they've probably been there before. They have a, they had a closed down for them. Um, but You Can't Catch Me is, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a single eventually that comes out after Maybelline in, in the US. And it's, a, you know, it's it's one of Chuck Berry's original Run of singles, isn't it? It is, but it's strangely, it's not a hit. Uh, it's not not a hit no. when it comes out. Um, it's just another one of his uh, story songs, and um, it comes out in between Maybelline and School Days, which are perhaps two more well-known singles. That's it, and there's a kind of you 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 find out at the end of the song that Maybelline, the car he's driving, and you can't catch me, is called Maybelline. So there's a little yes. kind of throwback to the previous, uh, and uh, yeah, the flat top when. Um, which is where this line comes from. You know, here come a flat top is in, you can't catch me. A flat top is a car, not a haircut. Well, yes, uh, maybe. <laughs> okay, well, we'll come back to that in the well, court, we come up, we, we, we give No, well, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's a flat top haircut, that kind of buzz cut with a kind of, uh, you know, completely flat top, or it could be the car. And um, Chuck Berry tells a story that it was, it was true story that it was, he was kind of, I, driving around and you know these guys you know with he talks about flat 
top haircuts and um they kind of overtake him and it's a bit like something out of a you know rebel without a cause or it's a kind of 1950s cliched dry gracing on the down the new jersey turnpike <laughs> and um you know chuck berry kind of then you know guns the engine pulls ahead and then he gets stopped by a state trooper uh it's a bruce springsteen song come to life and um <laughs> gets gets a speeding ticket you know um so yes it could be it could be the car it could be the haircut um but it's a supposedly uh, uh it's based on a true story folks Okay. And so obviously, yeah, since it's an early Chuck Berry song, it would have, the, the theory is that it would have gone into the, the ears of a young John Lennon at some point. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, John Lennon, big Chuck Berry fan, the Beatles hugely, uh, you know, drawing on, on, on Chuck Berry's repertoire for their early uh, are there any hits? Um, Chuck died in 2017, mm. and uh, Paul, who we've kind of said before, Paul has constantly been called upon to eulogise uh, deceased rock stars. I do stars. feel sorry for Paul. His website is just a list of him saying they were a great guy and a huge influence. And Shockerbox. Yeah. So he 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 actually says in, said in 2017, it's not really possible to sum up what he meant to us all as young guys growing up in Liverpool. To us, he was a magician. Mm. Um, but they, they, there's a lot of Chuck Berry songs in their early repertoire. There's two of them turn up on albums, uh, Roll Over Beethoven, which George sings rock and roll music from Beatles for Sale, which is John. And mostly it's John is singing the Chuck Berry song. So if you go to the Live at the BBC album, you've got Too Much Monkey Business, Carol, Johnny Be Good, Memphis, Tennessee, Sweet Little Sixteen, I've Got to Find My Baby. So hugely influential. And Paul yeah. still took the bass line for... I saw her standing there. He's quite open about this. Um, Which song is that from? Talking About You. Oh, right. And, uh, hmm. you know, probably uh, inventing rap at that point. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and if you can... Hip-hop and all hip-hop, that, yes. uh, it, it, the, the, hip, the hip and the hop music. If you think of uh, Back in the USSR... Yeah, Chuck Berry. It's as Oof. much a Chuck Berry pastiche. So it's like a pastiche mm. of the Beach Boys doing a pastiche of Chuck Berry. So... Uh, it's all in there. All human life is there. So obviously where there's a, a hit, there's a writ and there's somebody who owns the Chuck Berry publishing. Um, at, at, at this point, should we introduce uh, Mr. Morris Levy? Mr. Morris Levy. Yeah, Morris Levy. Uh, so, so what happens is, uh, you know, Abbey Road comes out, the single comes out. It's a big hit single. It gets the number one in America. And on the 3rd of April, 1970, uh, Morris Levy's company, Big Seven Music, filed a copyright infringement action in uh, New York. So this, this predates My Sweet Lord litigation. Yeah. Um, and I've heard some people say, oh, this is the first kind of plagiarism suit that the Beatles, but there were two, there were two earlier ones. Well, that's what I was going to ask him because, you know, you kind of, plagiarism is something that is a hot topic these days, you know, where there's lots of people suing other people and um, sometimes, you know, not suing other people. But the Beatles, this is kind of the the biggest, when you think about it, this is the most high profile plagiarism thing they get sued for. But then, yeah, plagiarism wasn't really a known quantity, I think, in the 60s. But they, was there other times that the Beatles got their collar felt for this? There were there were two others that kind of immediately came to mind. But in each of those cases, uh, it was a kind of just a quick settlement and there was no litigation. Um, the first one was um, In the Mood, which is oh, yes. played on the fade out of All You Need Is Love. So George yes. Martin, who you would think 
you know, George would know better, but it was the Glenn Miller arrangement of that song. Um, and George Martin said that uh, EMI forced him to settle and make a payment to the publishers of uh, In The Mood. Um, the other one was George, poor George. Um, oh, dear. Uh, with your long blonde hair and your eyes of blue. Right. On It's All Too Much, which is from uh, Sorrow. Yes. All You Ever Bring To Me Is Sorrow. Which uh, subsequently became potentially more famous by David Bowie's version in the early 70s. Um, but those those kind of two uh, uh, examples, because in the mood, I think um, George Martin assumed it was copyright control because he has green sleeves and he has all that other stuff in the outro of All You Need Is Love. Um you know, those two things you can say, well, look, they're just straight lifts. They're, you know, straight, they're, lifts. Not... they're straight lifts and, you know, some it's money... It's a fair cop. Put your fair hands cop. up. Some money changed hands and uh, the lawyers got very little in the way of fees. It's a bad thing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, but th- th- this this is really the first big um, sort of, you know, big litigation case, the big plagiarism case. And I think it reflects the character uh, of Morris Levy because he, by all accounts, uh, was a bit of a gangster in inverted commas. Um, And he certainly had form uh, in terms of, you know, hustling and making deals. And uh, you sort of immediately think of somebody like Alan Klein as well. And they seem to come from similar sort of backgrounds and have similar uh, approaches. So Mm. um, he was very wealthy. Um, He has a great background. Uh, It goes all the way back to the 50s. But um, I found an article uh, uh, and it said, uh, he made his fortune in the music business from bebop to big band jazz, from doo-wop to rockabilly and rock and roll. He had his fingers in everything. But uh, he wasn't a music innovator or even a musician. He was known primarily as a wheeler dealer businessman and a swindler. Um, Yeah, he's he was a guy who was born in 1927, as you say, kind of cut his teeth and and came to prominence in the 50s. So he's he's one of these classic kind of guys who gets into publishing and, um, you know, he 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 has the publishing for you can't. Uh, Catch Me, along with some other things. He was also a, a songwriter, wasn't he? He was. He he uh, <laughs> he was he was a songwriter. He he got, he was a co-writer on My Boy Lollipop, California Sun, and uh, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Fantastic, mm. fantastically talented. Ta- except, what a talented man! What a talented man! Except uh, he didn't write any of them. He just added his name to the credits. Um, yeah. Now, what what I what I would say is, you know, for all that we are going to spend the next two or three hours denigrating <laughs> Morris Levy, he he opened the jazz club Birdland mm. uh, in New York. So he he had kind of you know with with money that he what raised from a charity raffle. He, uh, he clearly had an, an eye for a deal um, yeah. because he, he very early on began to buy up uh, the copyrights uh, to jazz, rock and roll, R&B songs um, at an early stage. He was involved, I think, with Alan Freed, you know, mm-hmm. the, the DJ. Um, Someone else who put his name on records. Who put his name that, on records. That he didn't write. Exactly. The kind of payola scandal where where he was investigated by a, a congressional committee, et cetera, et cetera, and it was actually out of that I think that he that that Levy got um, the the publishing for Chuck Berry because Freed needed money, and um, right he in, in a, he kind of sold a, a lot of these copyrights on and um, so yeah. If memory serves, I think Freed was originally a 
open inverted commas songwriter close inverted commas on Maybelline. He was one of the names on Maybelline. Yes. So uh, yes, exactly for the same for the same thing. So Big Seven Music became a kind of umbrella organization for Levy, and he pressed records, did distribution deals with smaller labels. Um, uh, you know, suspected of making pirated copies of albums and selling them to stores, uh, getting all the money, not paying royalties. So just all all good fun. So they're the two names that we need to remember as we proceed on this story, which is Morris Levy and his umbrella company, Big Seven Music. Uh, but at that point, I think we might take a quick break. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So Morris Levy, uh, you know, we think he enters the story in the early 70s, but there's actually a bit of fun fact that uh, the Beatles and Morris Levy crossed paths in 1964. There is in Morris Levy's swimming pool. <laughs> okay, and we'll just leave it there. We'll we? just leave it there. Uh, so yeah, this is, this is, this is the weirdest thing. Um, well, it's one of, another one of these fabulous Beatle crisscross yeah, if coincidences. You, if you were writing this, making this story up, no one would believe you. So Morris Levy first meets the Beatles in February 1964. If you remember uh, from our Ed Sullivan episode, they are in Miami Beach, uh, live from the Deauville Hotel. And uh, Morris Levy has a house down there. And uh, he arranges for the Beatles to use a swimming pool because he says they couldn't swim in the hotel that they were staying at. They would have been mobbed. So, yeah, and that's a famous swimming pool visit. There's photos of that. There's you know, photos and everything. Well documented. Yeah. And, um, you know, while we're here, I'm going to say the Deauville Hotel. Uh, we're planning on having our uh, uh, <laughs> fan convention fan convention there. <laughs> and there is a campaign uh, to uh, renovate the Deauville Hotel. You should go online, find that uh, campaign and support that campaign. Yeah, it's a lovely building, the Deauville Hotel. So, yeah, go look at that. And uh, the other fun fact is that uh, Levy is apparently the inspiration for Hesh in The Sopranos. Now, I'm not a big Sopranos head. So I believe. I've never seen a single episode of The Sopranos. I know that's a terrible uh, uh, gap in my cultural... Uh... No, but, you know, sometimes, you know, there's an awful lot of pressure, isn't there? To, oh my God, I'm, you know, do I need to, uh, do I need to read War and Peace? Do I need to watch The Sopranos? You know? Same thing. It's it's just, yeah, it's just, you know, there's only so much time. Um, but yeah, if, if anyone out there loves The Sopranos, Hesh is apparently a Morris Levy type. Um, so Big Seven uh, is the owner of You Can't Catch Me. And they decide that there is a 
similarity um, and they want a copyright infringement action which is filed in Manhattan uh, on the 3rd of April 1970. So this is very, very soon after the song is a is a is a is a hit. Yes, it's it's very they're very fast out of the traps. Um, and so, what what's the setup of that? Who are they suing, or what are they doing? So um, they are defend the, the defendants uh, in the case are Northern Songs, its U.S. publisher Macklin Music Inc. and mm-hmm. Apple Records Inc., which is the New York end of the Beatles uh, Apple division. And um, this gives you an idea. Uh, of of how lawyers work. So what they were asking for, <laughs> you know, uh, well, this is I'm, I'm 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 you know I'm pulling the curtain back here. Um, Thank you. Uh, what what Big Seven asked for were one all the profits made from Come Together. And remember, this has been a number one U.S. Uh, single, an injunction against the continued exploitation of Come Together, and best of all destruction of the Beatles master recording of the song. Yeah. That's 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 an extraordinary list of demands. I mean in some ways you know, it, seems, it kind it seems, of seems perfectly reasonable to me. Well it's it's kind of a, a go big or go home type exactly, thing, isn't it? Exactly. It's I want I want a gazillion dollars. Will you this take is an t- will outrage you- and I want I want this thing fired from a cannon and the Beatles in the public square destroyed. How how my client, Mr. Levy, how is his good name to be besmirched by these four furry, long-haired, long-haired people? Yeah, yeah. And then it's, uh, will you take ten dollars? Fine, I'll take ten dollars. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, yes, it's, it's a classic kind of go big. Yeah, so that's that's the gambit here. Is that you know, uh, the profits, the destruction, the injunction. You know, potentially they're not really looking for those things. It's but it's 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 a, it's a legal poise to show it how. Is important and big this is. Am yeah, I reading that right? You're absolutely reading it right. Uh, um, uh, they're, they're, they're looking for cold, hard cash, but they're obviously in the right because they have a report. They have an expert's report uh, that says, from? well, from Harold Barlow. A certain, that name rings a bell, Stephen. I, yeah. Where have I heard that before? Uh, Mr. Harold Barlow is the chap uh, that we mentioned in our My Sweet Lord expert who is defending uh, George against the plagiarism suit. Right. But here he is defending Morris Levy. Yes. Uh, and he found 18 notes in common between the two songs. I didn't know there were 18 notes in the whole world. Um, <laughs> concluding, uh, concluding that the similarities involving melody and text together are sufficient in themselves alone to make a worthy claim of infringement. Well, I think that's an, this is an open and shut case. I think. I, I think. I think. I think we'll we'll, we'll um, slap our gavel down for this right now. Um, yeah, considering there's only twelve notes in the classic Western scale, that there's eighteen notes in common. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's it's, it's quite it's, something. It, it is quite something. Um, so they are, um, you know, they being big music, Morris Levy. They they throw this court case out. They start banging their fists, and. Um, you know, how does the U.S. Uh, justice system work in these situations? We're not getting into the broader question of uh, yeah. That's a that's a that's a very that's a very big question. Uh, how long have you got? We have. I think we'll have to save that for a bonus episode on the U.S. How the, the failings and successes of the U.S. Uh, legal system. Um, moving well, swiftly for, on. Moving swiftly on. Well, for anybody that you know, I know you're a big fan of things like Ali McBeal and uh, love it, uh, love it. Uh, the LA good, Law. LA Law. I model my entire career on uh, um, uh, oh. 
When Ali Law slams down that boot lid, man, That's you know it. you're in for an hour. Harry Hamlet. I am Harry. I am Harry Hamlet. Trunk lid, I should say. Trunk yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you, you'll know from TV shows that everything gets into court, you know, the next day, and they have depositions. So, so we don't have this in the UK, but in, in, in the US, each side is allowed to depose uh, uh, the other side, or basically take sworn statements from key witnesses mm-hmm. ahead of the trial. Um, so these are the things we see on telly where people are in like an office conference room and there's sets of lawyers on each side of the table and they're kind of getting a statement from a key player in what's about to go down. That's it. And there's a kind of stenographer typing away and writing everything yeah. up and, and there's all, everybody always goes, aha, and produces something. And then, the, you know, uh, it's great. It's great. It's just like, it's just like uh, uh, real life. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Big Seven obviously want to depose John Lennon. Um, mm-hmm. but, but he absolutely refuses to play ball. Now, Alan Klein, who is a kind of direct counterpart, I suppose, to Morris Levy, as they, they came up on the same mean streets of New York. Um, Klein offers Big Seven a deal and says, uh, get your detective, stop looking. I'll deliver them to you on my terms. He says to William Krasilovsky, uh, who is Levy's <laughs> lawyer, all the great characters. Great you, names. You and your wife come to my place and stay overnight and we'll arrange for a private deposition, which is quite, I have to say, the invitation. Well, you know, uh, you, you kind of feel that Klein and Levy are, as you said earlier, they're kind of a, of, a, of a type and they might speak each other's language. Yeah. So, you know, Klein is saying, hey, come to my house and we'll make this go away type thing. Uh, yes, in all my time as a lawyer, I have never once had anybody say, you and your wife come to my place for a private deposition. I honestly, I've, no one has ever said that to me. No, not, not even as a euphemism. Not even as a euphemism. <laughs> um, so this, this deposition does take place and it takes place on Christmas Eve. Uh, 1970. Uh, 19, 1970. Uh, and this is at the Regis Hotel. And we've talked about the Regis Hotel in previous episodes. And you kind of this... There's sort of film footage of where so John and Yoko are staying there at time. And mm. Krasilovsky talks about this and he says, this is a direct quote, that John Lennon's attitude was that Barry's music mentored him. Lennon was a compulsive fan. He had listened to the Chuck Berry record over and over again and said it must have gotten into my subconscious with that flat top phrase. We didn't have a court reporter present. Instead, we agreed on a handshake that Lennon would sign a stipulation of what his testimony would be. We manufactured a deposition for mutual convenience. So he's sort of acknowledging they didn't actually do a a, a formal... I am no legal expert, but there's a couple of things that I'm going to point out. And as the story unfolds, it seems to me repeatedly that Lennon has bad advice and bad support. I don't know if that's a fair thing to say, but... I I, I think just from that one paragraph, uh, I think he had very bad advice at this stage. And, And you can't help but feel the hand of Klein in, you know, not actually protecting... Lenin. So repeatedly what happens is this, because this is the start of something that's going to hang around for years and years and years. And Lenin, it seems repeatedly, certainly in the first couple of years of it, it puts himself in this situation. He's like, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess I did uh, copy Chuck Berry. But anyway, shall we, you know, keep moving on? But yeah. he, he, there, there doesn't seem to be a proper legal barrier that's telling John Lennon to shut it down or do it formally or be quiet or don't talk or, um, you know, uh, he, he 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 basically puts his hands up from he, the start. He, he does uh, purely and because he is this. He sees himself as this bastion of honesty and telling the truth, and you know, saying it as it is. 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a combination of various things. That that's certainly it. That Lennon is just kind of, uh, as you say, um, you, you know, the bastion of honesty and truth. You've also got the fact that Klein sees everything from a business perspective. Everything's a deal. Everything's a hustle. Levy is the same. I would say, he probably Klein probably thinks well, there's a deal to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Levy and certainly a, we, we come on to this uh, at a number of points it is specifically put to Levy you know how much will this take or what exactly do you want and um, there are lots of discussions and negotiations going on directly between the principals I mean this is something that would never happen in litigation you know as, as lawyers you would never let your clients just get in a room together yeah. um, and have a chat because there's no such thing. Get in thing. a room, have a chat, not have it properly documented. Yeah. Say, we'll, we'll, we'll draw up whatever you want me to say and I'll sign it at a, at a future point. Yeah. None of this seems like good practice. No, no. Uh, I mean, there's no such thing as an off-the-record conversation in litigation. Yeah. You know, that, that every, everything, even if it can't be formally used in court, everything that is said and done is going to inform the other side's tactics, whether it's negotiating tactics or, you know, what they're asking for or everything that is said is, has to be looked at and analyzed as looking for a weakness or a chink in the other side's armor. And it's absolutely nuts that, uh, particularly a client of Lennon's stature, you you know, um, maybe he's just unmanageable. Maybe he's just, maybe it is, I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that Klein just sees this as a, oh, it'll never get to court. This is what this is what this is what happens. You know, we we posture, we ask for the destruction of the master tapes, and we'll settle at some point. And it's all it's played out that way. Well, yeah, it it it, it is it is this sort of. Uh... You know, you, you see it in more recent uh, worldwide tropes, this sort of myth of the businessman who can get things done. And yeah. actually, he's not, Klein is not getting things done here. He is doing things in a uh, in a not very, you know, long-term manner. It's all very short-term, what Klein is trying to do. This is, this is why, folks, it's always better to pay the lawyers their bills and get the good legal advice. And... <laughs> Well, you know, I have to have to say, Stephen, you know, in, in, in my deep, deep research for this, I noticed that uh, Come Together actually has a second songwriter. It's not just written by John Lennon on his own. If I pull up this piece of paper here, it's also written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So Paul McCartney is obviously being deposed in a New York uh, hotel by some shady lawyers for a, a, an unscrupulous publishing company, isn't he? When does he give that deposition? Well, you would think so, because that's that's Paul's natural environment. Uh, is, is, uh... <laughs> Paul's natural environment is surrounded by lawyers, which exactly. we're about to see pay off in spades absolutely you're absolutely right um yeah th- this is this is a point that does kind of come up you know why did big seven not also sue paul mccartney um but there are two points john lennon is not actually named as a defendant in this case it's the publishers it's northern songs and MacLen and the record company apple so um john is not uh, is not named um he's just in the thick of it uh the second thing in in that deposition document that John eventually signed. He says, uh, no, it was my song. I wrote it. I claim, he claimed sole <laughs> authorship. Um, That's very nice of him. It's very nice of him. But again, you, you know, there's a version of events where John has a decent lawyer in 1970 and says, shut up. Paul's on the stake for Paul's on the hook for half of this. Yeah. You know, we're going to drag this out. But right up front, John puts his hands up and not only says, yeah, I was listening to Chuck Berry. And by the way, leave Paul alone. 
Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, uh, and it's, it's all hindsight and revisionism. But in in the in in the many years from now, book Paul says, I, as soon as I heard it, I thought it's Chuck Berry song. That's that's got to be. So if they had deposed Paul in nineteen seventy, he would have said, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I remember him. I noticed immediately. I was I tra- trying to invent hip hop. I was trying to make it swampy, but Paul, but John kept copying Chuck Berry. Yeah. Um, so uh, th- that that explains why Paul was never de- deposed or called on to give evidence about the writing of the song. You know that he's still d- not deposed. He's the king. Uh, anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, Sorry, folks. So um, uh, Paul is not not called upon to give evidence. Um, Thank you, but. Krasilovsky says Paul and Lee Eastman, quote, wanted no part of John Lennon's mistake and stayed on the sidelines. It was not a happy time for the Beatles and Lee Eastman was nobody's fault. To the extent that Apple was sued, Lee got a warranty so that any damages or costs would be borne by Lennon. Now, this is really interesting because obviously, folks, Lee Eastman is Linda uh, Eastman, Linda McCartney's dad, and yeah. so Paul's father-in-law. So Paul is literally surrounded by lawyers in the family, and they are lawyers who specialize in this kind of thing. And and this is this is this is this is really interesting because it's not as if he's taking John's deposition at its word. This warranty is the actual legal protection. That's right. That's right. So uh, as you say, Linda's father, Billy Kodak. Um, <laughs> uh, this this surprises me greatly uh mm-hmm. you, you know that who did who did uh who did paul get the warranty from was this a warranty from lennon from apple from northern songs from maclen what, what what's going on here that, 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 so, so legally how does this work does a warranty have to have does the person he's going to warranty against have to acknowledge it yeah, I mean, this is this is. They say warranty. The the phrase I would use is an indemnity. So that if we get okay. su- if we get sued, this podcast gets sued for something that you most likely you have said. Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, I would be saying, okay, uh, Mr. Carty, uh, I would like you to indemnify me, Mr. Cockcroft, that if we get sued, <laughs> you you said this terrible thing, uh, um, and uh, about Paul inventing hip hop. Uh, if we get sued over that, you will pay the damages and I won't have to. The judgment will be against both of us. Yeah. Uh, and so they can enforce the claim against both of us, but then you have to reimburse me. And that's the kind of indemnity or warranty. I'm assuming that that's what we're talking about. Well, Krasilovsky says that in, in, in when, you, when you look at what he says, he says to the extent that Apple was sued. So I guess Paul is taking you know, his bit of Apple back to Apple legally through Eastman. So whether it's Klein signing off as Apple or somebody else signing off. So it's, 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 it's Apple Paul. It's Paul as a part of Apple that's protecting himself. And, and, and in some ways, if Apple are being sued, Ringo and George could have gotten themselves indemnities too. Well, you see, this is the thing. It's Apple. So it just kind of comes, you know, if, if, if uh, Levy wins a million dollars, it will just be paid by Apple and then it will come off the uh, top line of Apple's mm-hmm. profits and the net profits then are divided between uh, the four Beatles, essentially. Um, at this stage, yeah. they're all, all the income from the four of them is pouring into Apple and then being divided Equally, so Paul must have got something. Now, I, I, I don't know whether this is just a kind of expression or, or whether there are, there are legal documents, but obviously the single most important question, if we get Paul on the podcast, will be, tell us about this uh, warranty that you had. I mean, that, that's really the, 
thing that we want to know about. So. If Tolkien's on this podcast, there'll be an awful strange collection of questions that are given to him, you know? Anyway, hello, uh, Paul. To- thank you. And question one. In 1970, yeah. you got a warranty from... Uh, yeah, question two. What was the deal with the song Boyle Crisis? That's that'd yes. be fine. Yeah, yeah. So we, we can do back and forth questions. Um, so the deposition, though, they have this deposition with John uh, yes. in the Regis Hotel, and it's very casual, and then it eventually gets written up into a formal deposition, and that is evidence that gets submitted to the court. So what does John say in this deposition? He obviously says, nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. Yes, I have, I have, I have summarised uh, his deposition into <laughs> 34 uh, bullet points. No. Um, he's, well, the first thing is he said, ever since I was in my teens, I was acquainted with the works of Chuck Berry, whom I consider one of the original rock and roll poets. And you've got to love the uh, lawyers putting, I, I, Lennon never said, whom I consider. Um, anyway, um, surely a good lawyer would have had him depose. Who's Chuck Berry? I've never seen this man before in my life. Who is Chuck Berry? Um, he, he admits that he wasn't sure whether Chuck Berry had used the phrase flat top to mean a car or the driver or something else, but insisted that come together had nothing whatsoever to do with an automobile. Mm. Um, he said he hadn't heard You Can't Catch Me for approximately 10 to 11 years before the time he wrote, uh, come together and not again until it was played for him at his deposition in this particular case. Um, the Stones had recorded yeah, a version. That, that, that seems odd, 10 to 11 years. You know, we know John liked his old rock and roll. We know he had a big jukebox in his house full of rock and roll. Yeah. Um, and the, Sto- the Stones released a version of it in 1965. And uh, But John said, I'm not familiar with the recording by the Stones. Mm. <laughs> not a fan. Yes. Um, and so there, there is there is other little bits of information in the, the deposition where he describes the lyrics as a surrealistic stream of consciousness that have no meaning to anyone but me, except, of course, we've already decided it's all about the Beatles. And, um, you know, the, the it, it, he talks about, you know, um, here come old flat top. He, he correlates this to here comes the Sun King that, you know, it's just a phrase. This is this is interesting because yes, he says uh, Paul and I wrote a song entitled "Sun King." Well, I don't. Paul had no input into that. I don't. I, I don't think. Um, <laughs> Here comes Lee Eastman. Sun King has nothing to do with me. Yes, get out of time. Yes, get out of time. Um, and he said neither Mister Barry nor anyone else ever claimed the phrase "Here come" in those songs. He also references uh, um, "Here comes the sun." Infringed. You can't catch me, Mister Barry. So, so if we're looking at this phrase, here come old flat top, we've already thoroughly uh, dismantled the fact that here come isn't a phrase connected to Chuck Berry. Is flat top uh, a Chuck Berry word? Well, uh, again, um, Lennon references the Dick Tracy villain, flat top. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I, I, I don't know. Is that right? Have you seen them at that film? With I, I remember when year, when it was thirty plus years since that uh, Warren Beatty I was Dick Tracy say, film big, came big, out. You big, know? You're, I know you're a big fan of Hanky Panky. Um, the Madonna song. The Madonna song. Yes. The oh, song. she has a song called that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I will, I, in my contrarian state, I will not say that that is a good song, Hanky Panky. Normally, I like bad songs by good artists, but Hanky Panky is just a terrible Madonna song. Anyway, continue. Um, this isn't the Madonna podcast, Strike a Pose. That's coming soon. Um, uh, also, the song Flat Top Polka by W. Schultz and Flat Top 
Pickin' by country artist Cowboy Coppers, both published before the Chuck Berry song. So what's that? Well, you know, the fact that Chuck Berry was using the phrase here come old flat top in You Can't Catch yeah. Me, you'd assume that he was using it in a way that people would recognize it, you know? Yeah, I think I think the key point is, you know, here come old flat top here come a flat top that it's the rhythm it's the intonation that there's, yes there's a, there's and grooving a, up slowly yes moving up slowly so it, and when you do hear you can't catch me because i heard come together before i heard you can't catch me and when you do hear you can't catch me you're like oh yeah yeah like it's it's it's, it not, is. it's not a leap it's an homage yeah it's a it's a, a sample it's a snippet it's the type of thing in in 2021 that you know would easily be settled yeah. quite quickly you know to say oh listen Here's some, uh, here's some money go away. Um, so, yeah. so yeah. So what? So what happens is they, they, they. This is these are the key points of the deposition. So this is entered into evidence. So the parties know where they stand on this, and yeah. uh, this is uh, late 1970, early 1971, and then the the case will kind of tip over into 1973. But in 1972, John and Chuck meet. Yes. So there's, there's, two, there's two things in 1972 that happen in relation to Come Together. So one is uh, John and Chuck meet and the other one is Come Together gets an airing at the one-to-one concert um, in, in Madison Square Garden. So John and Chuck Berry meet on a, a talk show. Yes, the Mike Douglas show. And how does that come to pass, do we know? Well, this is, uh, as I, well, the Mike Douglas show uh, is a sort of a, I suppose a chat show with with mm. with sort of music and uh, on it. It's uh, syndicated in the US between 1963 and 1981. 1972, John and Yoko are in New York. They're they're sort of politically active. They're campaigning. They're recording sometime in New York City. You you've got that whole kind of uh, um, you know little benefit concerts are popping up for Attic State for uh, John Sinclair. This sort of thing. So they're they're on a publicity drive. And they're also watching TV. I do like this fact that, you know, 1972, they're in New York and they're popping up on things like the Mike Douglas show and, and, yeah. and, and you know, evening, you know, New York news and all the rest, you know, that they're, it's, 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 it's quite, um, it's quite local what they're doing. Yes. They're sort of fixtures. It on just local. happens to be local in the biggest city. <laughs> well, not the biggest city in the world, but certainly <laughs> if you can make it there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, you know, they've, they've been on the Dick Cavett show. The Mike Douglas show essentially offers them an editorial role for one week. Yeah. Uh, so it's a week commencing the 14th of February, 1972. Uh, they're going to be there. They're going to get to invite the, uh, you know, the guests on and kind of set the, the, the tone. Um, so uh, he, John is working with Elephant's Memory Band at the moment, at, at this particular moment in time. And um, they are going to be appearing on this show across the week. So the first show, the first show, Mike Douglas sings a song, um, you know, to open, <laughs> to open the show because he's got John Lennon on. He sings uh, Michelle. Yes, he sings. He does. It's quite, it's quite crazy. Um, and one of the band members talks, says that John Lennon was not happy. He didn't know this was going to happen. He's in the wings and he is furious that Mike Douglas has opened the song, uh, the show in this well, way. Mike Douglas is quite... Um... How would you say? Uh, he's he's not very hip, really, is he? No, no. Dick Cavett is kind of seen at the time as being the hip daytime, you know, New York uh, chat show host guy because he's having whatever Marlon Brando and all those people on, you know, doing all these kind of cool and groovy things. Mike Douglas is very, um, yeah, it's 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 like, um, I, I mean, I suppose the 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 
Richard Madeley. Yeah, he's, he's a certain <laughs> certain kind of Richard Madeley, Alan Partridge about him. He's uh, you know he, he's he's hosting a show that nowadays would be comparable, I guess, with shows like the Ellen Show, these kind of daytime night entertainment type shows. Um, but it's even more kind of square and straightforward. What I find is you pull these things up on YouTube, and uh, there's an awful lot of kind of dead air and, and boredom. There's not a lot of drive to these shows. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not d- dissing him as a broadcaster or anything like that, but it, it's really hard to look at it with 2021 20, eyes. And, yes. You know, the, the pace, you're like, come on, <laughs> get on with it. It's very incongruous to see uh, yeah. John, John and Yoko sitting on that show. And uh, so the first guest I have on on that first show is Ralph Nader. Do you remember Ralph Nader? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, presidential candidate uh, uh, later on. And he's interviewed and he specifically says, I have no interest in ever being president. So he lived up to that, uh, <laughs> that billing. Um, and John and Yoko sing It's So Hard from uh, Imagine. Right. Day two, uh, the guest is Jerry Rubin. Yes. And uh, Mike, Mike Douglas says, you know, he was very nervous about what uh, Jerry Rubin was going to say. And sure enough, Jerry Rubin comes on. Very anti-Nixon rant go, goes off on one. Uh, day three, Chuck Berry arrives. And um, Tex Gabriel of Elephant's Memory Band said John was absolutely in heaven, um, uh, the, yeah. the, just to get playing, to meet and to play with Chuck Berry. And a lot of rehearsals, um, they play Johnny Be Good and Memphis, but live on national television, Chuck starts the song in a completely different key to the one that they have rehearsed. And if you look, you, you, he said, you can see Lennon being a, about, you, you know, the look on his face when this happens. And it's a very odd start to the song. It's not a, you know, the sound is very scratchy. It's very, but clearly because this is the band is suddenly thinking, oh, Chuck's decided to. And that's a very Chuck Berry thing to do, I think. Yeah, it's, it's the dynamic is not a comfortable dynamic when you see. No. John and Yoko and Chuck on stage. And so Chuck, John is obviously nervous. And, um, you know, Chuck Berry is doing Chuck Berry where he's kind of totally full of himself and Mm -hmm. totally confident and doesn't really care what's going on. Um, And as you say, they do Memphis and, and Johnny Be Good. And then Yoko does some of her um, vocalizing at some point. Yes. No. And, um, you know, it, nothing happens on air, but I think subsequently Chuck wasn't particularly, um, kind about Yoko's no. interjections. No, uh, Tex Gabriel of the Elephant's Memory Band, uh, does remark on that. Uh, also says, you know, if you watch that clip, you can see the look on Chuck Barry's face when he suddenly hears Yoko yeah. um, vocalizing, and she's she's kind of tapping a little handheld drum like little kind of bongos in a very kind. Of, you can almost hear her counting <laughs> uh, in her head to kind of get the get the beat and not quite getting it. And you, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Yoko, uh, but I think this was a mistake. I think this genuinely was a mistake. They sh- she should just have let John play with Chuck Berry and the Elephant's Memory Band. They were, they were a kind of good, solid bar band that could have played Chuck Berry songs all night. Uh, and this was not a time for yeah. Yoko to be making an appearance. And there, there isn't a big, um, there isn't a big John and Chuck interview or anything no. like that associated with the show. No, no. And 
So John and Yoko are kind of present throughout this week of the Mike Douglas show, but it's not like they're constantly being interviewed or it's not like a week-long interview. There's other guests coming There's and other going. Guests and coming they're, kind and of, they're kind of a presence in the background. They're, they're a presence and they get involved in the interviews and they, they, they you know, they're talking about, you know, peace and they're talking about, uh, you know, the Democratic Convention and the Republicans and Nixon. And I mean, day four, for example, John invites uh, Bobby Seale on, who's mm. a member of the Black Panther organization. Mike, <laughs> Mike Douglas, really not happy about this but they've kind of given this editorial control uh over yeah. and uh, i should at this point people will be fans of um uh pete doggett's book you know you never give me your money he has a great book called there's a riot going on uh which which deals with the black panthers and he kind of mentions this uh this interview in bobby seal but the, the whole thing is very bizarre um but what i don't know is whether chuck and john had a chat um about yeah. the court case. You know, you imagine Chuck fond of a dollar. Uh, At this point, Chuck actually doesn't own his publishing. Obviously. He doesn't. It's Levy he doesn't. and Big Seven who own it. And, you know, even if the this potential court action goes the other way, um, you know, Chuck isn't probably going to see a, a big payday out of it. It's Morris Levy who's, yeah. who's, who's angling for the payday. If I were, uh, if I had been John Lennon's lawyer and wow, what a different world that would have been. Um, <laughs> I would have been saying to John, ask Chuck, will he come and be a witness and say that, you know, he doesn't see any similarity between the two songs and then uh, offer Chuck a recording contract and go on to a duets album with Chuck Berry and that will revitalize his career. And there we go. That all seems like a good idea. To the time machine. Um, so this is February 1972, where John Lennon and Chuck Berry interact for basically the only onstage performance. You know, John, John didn't do a lot of performing, but the other performing he did do in 1972 was uh, on the 30th of August in Madison Square Garden, where he does his only full-length concert performance after leaving the Beatles, which, you know, is the one-to-one gig, which eventually becomes uh, the the not great sounding live in New York City album, but he does do come together at these gigs. He does. It's terrible, terrible, terrible album, terrible sounding album. Yeah. And uh, th- this is one of the sort of first post-December 1980 um, albums. And I think, I, I personally think it's a, you know, lost opportunity. Um, you know, there were two concerts. There was a matinee and an evening performance. They used um, uh, the, the band, the Elephant's Memory Band that were, Jim Keltner sat in with the band on stage and they all said they, they used the wrong performances. Um, mm. um, uh, Yoko got to sing uh, half a dozen songs uh, at those performances. They didn't make the album. I think that would have been fine to, to put those performances on. Um, but I, I and a lot of rehearsal bootlegs uh, mm. kick, kicking around as well. And I think I'm hoping, I am hoping that when we get sometime in New York City, the uh, the, the the Lennon, you know, the the, the box that will be coming, um, yeah. that we might get either a standalone box of these New York performances. And there's lots of other little bits and pieces and Harlem Theater and Ann Arbor there, and things like that. There um, is a rumor that that there's a live in New York City total reconfiguration done about seven or eight years ago that never came out. So if it's sitting on the shelves, there's certainly a big box of all it that stuff. Certainly that could was be done. very, very badly, very, very badly mixed. Um, um, so that's come together uh, being performed by John in August 1972, and traditionally. 1972 gets followed by 1973, where we are trying to get a settlement or some kind of court uh, appearance to sort out this issue. But amazingly, 
this is going to happen in part two because, you know, it's uh, it's such a long and involving story. And if there's anything our listeners are crying out for, it's more legal podcasting. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm here for that. I'm here for that. Whether the listeners but, are here for that is a different story. Uh, but it is a story that, uh, you know, even when you think it's ending, it's only just beginning. Um, how one song come together leads to a whole uh, strange world of, 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 of pain for, for John Lennon. Uh, but we are going to cover that in the next part. Um, so tell us what you think. We're available in all the usual places, Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, uh, Instagram. Um, we are on uh, www.nothingisrealpod.com, which is our website, which is links to all our social medias, playlists to go with previous shows, um, you know, other things that we've appeared on, all of that stuff, nothingisrealpod.com. Join us there. But for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And we'll see you next time for more on the incredible story of Come Together. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.